Hi, my name is Infinite, and for more than seven years, I've had the privilege of working as a community organizer on issues related to education equity. And while I've seen a lot of potential for transformation, we have a long way to go. Welcome to Back to Freedom Schools, ongoing conversations about education equity in the state of Vermont. There is nothing like a global pandemic to peel back some of the layers that cover up the racial and social inequities in our state and country. As our public schools face this dilemma head on, the situation on the ground remains way more complicated than the policy and political debates about getting back to normal. Our friend Kathleen Kesson reminds us, it is human nature to want to get back to normal following a crisis of great magnitude, to restore a sense of stability. But what if, she asked, so-called normal forms of social, economic, and ecological behaviors are themselves at the root of the crisis? Now that we are dominated by logistical and safety concerns, priorities have shifted away from addressing the inequities that existed in our public school system before COVID-19. In this program, some of the topics we cover will fall under the broad umbrella of education equity, including areas like school finance and curriculum, with special attention being given to racial equity, literacy, and of course, decolonizing education systems. Thank you for listening. In the next few series of episodes, we are going to take a deep dive into the issue of literacy and comprehension, reading and writing, among the most fundamental skill sets and keys to learning and growing. I'm Emily Baker. I go to Randolph Union. I'm graduating 2021, so I'm going to be a senior. I'm 16, turning 17 in like a month, so that's cool. First question, what was your experience with remote learning like? What worked well? What didn't go so well? It was like depressing, like just sad not to be able to interact with my teachers and my peers and stuff. Like, and I felt like I wasn't retaining the knowledge as much. Like my GPA went down and I wasn't enjoying school as much. And like all the things I enjoyed about schools, like National Honor Society, racial justice and volleyball and softball, like all that was taken away from me. And I know that sounds like really sad. Like, oh my God, it was taken away from me. Like pity me. But like my school was like changed. It was like my whole life changed you know yeah the teachers tried really hard which was really good and I had a really good relationship with my teachers during school so that translated very well into distance learning that was good that's like the plus side I see from it I had a good relationship like an open relationship with my teachers but like a downside is I wasn't able to get that like one-on-one like face-to-face instruction that like I thrive off of as a uh, with the learning style I have. So, you know, I just, those are like some pluses and minuses that I saw or like I experienced from the distance learning. Okay. In your district, did you see this play out differently for families or students across race? I mean, like all of the students in my class besides two are white students. So like, I don't really have much experience with like learning like it affecting students of different races and stuff um but like my own my friend who is well he's black and he had some serious like trauma happen to him throughout the year like medically 
So his year was like totally shifted and stuff. So the teachers really tried to help him out as much as possible, which was, I mean, from my experience and talking to him was a good experience for him. But realistically, that's like the only conversation I had during distance learning about race or race inequity. And I don't really have the answer for that. Okay. Do you feel like you had the resources you needed at home, such as uh, a learning space, supplies, or a teacher or mentor to help? Not like in home, not really. I have like really, really crappy Wi-Fi. I live in the middle of nowhere, like Vermont, Vermont. So it's hard for me to like, I've like had to like be like, oh, I'm so sorry I'm late to call my Wi-Fi shut down. Oh my God, I missed class because I didn't have Wi-Fi. So like that kind of sucked and my computer kept crashing. So I had to go get the one from the, from the school and then that one didn't work. So I had to call tech support and like my parents both were, everyone in my family is considered an essential employee because they work for like the ag and dairy industries in Vermont. So I was pretty much home alone all day, every day. So that was difficult, but again, the teachers were really supportive. So I feel like I kind of had them to lean on and help me. And they would be like, yeah, I understand you missed the call because of your Wi-Fi or something happened, you know? Yeah. What was it like for, you, for your family uh, during the shelter in place order? Realistically, my family's life, like my mother and father still went to work every single day. And my brother, he works nights as at a farm. So his job didn't change. But it's just every time they'd get home, they're like, holy crap, what if I got it? What if I'm sick? What if, what if, what if? Because like, if they lost their jobs, like, or because they got sick, like, we wouldn't be able to like function because everyone would have had to come home and nobody in the house would have been working. And those three essential positions that would not have been filled, like, it's just... It was just scary for them. And it was scary for me because I couldn't leave the house to go help them or like, I just had to sit at home waiting for them to come home, wondering if they got sick that day. How did you receive feedback on your, your school work, work during the remote learning? Um, my teachers do everything via Google Classroom, Google Meet. So I had two classes my English and history that met once a week uh, via Google Meet and we discussed and like kind of broke down and dived into what we learned that week and I would email my teachers like crazy and they'd email me back with all of their like critiques and comments on my work and they always left me little comments in my writing and I would like meet with my guidance counselor and stuff. So like I sought out a lot of help through them. So that was, that's how I got my feedback. Okay. Did your family have a hard time managing the new situation? Like uh, things like the, the new school schedule, uh, childcare, is it, uh, school supplies, food, meal preparation, anything like that? If you had asked me that question when I was in elementary school, I would have said, heck yeah. Like we really would have had a serious struggle. Yeah. But since I'm 16, I was home alone and I would make my own food and like we didn't need anyone for childcare, like, and we could actually afford food now. So that's good. Mm -hmm. So it didn't really like cripple us, but a lot of my friends struggled with those things mm -hmm. and I felt bad for them because okay. I like, I couldn't go and help them, you know? Yeah. Any 
thing for you or your or your friends or people you know happen like emotionally like in terms of concerns about emotions or social skills and social emotional connections i know i have a younger cousin who he's an only child and he's very much like he needs to be in a school in a social environment mm -hmm. and i'm when i visited him i was really worried about his like development socially like he's very he needs to be like in a classroom interacting with kids his own age yeah. And he didn't get that. So I visited him and I'm like, whoa, you, you really did miss that. And a lot of my friends are going through a lot of like serious, like mental health struggles because of this. And I, I can't go help them. I like call them and text them and FaceTime them. But like, it just feels like it's not enough. Like my best friend, her dad has like cancer and he, she couldn't go see him. So all of this is just hitting everyone so hard and not being able to go to school and have like an outlet of like six to seven hours a day where you're just like there to learn has been really hard for them. Did you notice any like new behaviors um, in, that you saw during this period that you hadn't seen before during this remote learning experience? Of myself or my classmates? Both. Or, Both. Um, Yourself or, your, or your, your, your peers? I realized I really need, like, supervision in my learning. Mm -hmm. Like, I would, I, I need that. I, like, I would obviously, I would show up to the calls, but, like, I'd be like, oh, I didn't finish the assignment. I, and I'd, like, rush to finish it after the call. So, like, I would do it, but it would always be, like, an hour late or like a day late or something. So my like punctuality and like getting stuff done really suffered. And I didn't know that about myself until now. So going into next year, I need to be more aware of that. Mm. A lot of my classmates just didn't show up. So that was something new I learned. Mm -hmm. Do you think you feel like you learned more about the same or less? Um, about the same drifting towards less. Okay. Because a lot of the learning that I do in school, it's like big class discussion. And that was lacking because nobody was showing up to the calls or handing stuff in on time. So like, I missed that like Socratic seminar-esque discussion mm. that I, you know, learned a lot from in school. Mm -hmm. Did you have any like learning plans at all? EST, 504, IEP, anything like that? Uh, I'm on an IEP current for dyslexia. Mm -hmm. Was that plan followed? Um, was were those followed? Was that followed during the remote learning period? Um, yeah. I mean, my like, I don't know what to call her. My like, it used to be, but now I switched to the other um, support person, IEP dyslexia lady. Um, she wasn't as involved. So I feel like that could have been better. Mm -hmm. But she called me twice throughout this whole thing. And I feel like that could have been more. And that would have been way more helpful. But it's, I didn't have that like close relationship with her. So I couldn't really like go to her and ask for help. So, like if I need the help, I'd be like, hey, I want to help me. Because like she's always been my support person. I couldn't actually go to my support person that the school gave me to follow through with my IEP stuff. It was, it was just weird.
do you have any uh, concerns about your learning moving forward? If it's distance learning next year, yeah, 100%. Like, because my senior project next year, well, hopefully, depending on COVID and like how we handle it, I was supposed to be student teaching a kindergarten class and like shadowing and doing like hands-on learning with the kindergartners because I want to be a teacher when I grow up. Well, when I grow up, that sounds so lame, but when I, you know, have a career. But no one has emailed me or kept in contact with me about anything that's going on. So, like, last night I sent, like, freak out emails, like, hi, people, please email me. Let me know what's going on so I can change my plan if I can't do this. Mm-hmm. Because if I can't do that next year, like, I have to replan my entire senior year by myself at my house because I can't go see teachers in person. So I'm actually really freaked out about that because that's my entire senior year down the drain if I can't do that. So what do you think would, would help you have a smooth, smoother transition? Teachers emailing me <laughs> would be very helpful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, my mentor getting back to me, just more communication. Like nobody is, and I'm not saying I've been like, but I look at my email every day waiting for an email to come through. And I'm like, I was giving them time and I was like, okay, if they don't email me by the end of this month, I'll get on him because I know teachers need a break because it's been super stressful with all of this and they deserve a break. But like, also I need to get my butt in gear so I don't fail senior year. So I just more communication and honestly the ease, like just this quicker and safer and smarter we can handle things and like make sure that everyone stays safe going forward that would just make me feel like better and more like safer going back into school when back in school what 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 do you think would help support your success like covid wise like really strongly enforcing guidelines and stuff because my school has a lot of behavioral issues anyway mm-hmm. and i just it's crazy to imagine like you have to wear a mask you have to stay six feet away you have to wash your hands constantly I'm just like envisioning all the kids that like misbehave or like don't follow rules just like blatantly neglecting it so that's terrifying to me but also just like trying to keep the school as much of a like safe positive place as possible because like kids thrive in a safe learning environment and like a positive learning environment like obviously and I feel like if it's constant like fear that you're gonna like you know catch a you know disease or virus it's not gonna be like a healthy positive learning environment so if we can't like figure all this out before it's probably not even gonna be worth it going back to school because you know it's just gonna be so such a negative environment So what do you want lawmakers and and other decision makers at the top to know about your experience? That it just, it wasn't fun. Like I didn't feel like I was getting this education that like, I'm not going to be like, I deserve as a student, but like, I mean, I missed out on a lot of opportunities. Like the conference that didn't happen, that was like so freaking important to me and it didn't happen. And I know it wouldn't have been safe to have it, but like possibly doing that. And yeah, it's just that kids, kids are like struggling (laughs) and we just want our lives to not 
be full of like fear and we want to know that like the lawmakers aren't like just totally disregarding us you know because like sometimes it just feels like they just don't care Mm -hmm. and that like kind of freaking sucks (laughs) Mm -hmm. so what what kind of you know this is this is about data right like what what kind of data like what kind of information do you think that we should be paying the most attention to as we transition back to reopening in order to to um tell that things are going well i mean like obviously like case numbers and how how many cases are there and how like how the state is responding to it and all that stuff like obviously because if there's like a crap load of cases, we're not going to like jump into reopening, obviously. But like, I don't know. <laughs> yeah. Right? Yeah. Yes. Yeah. That yeah. That, that's in terms of that's in terms of COVID. I guess I was thinking more about information pertaining to young people's education. Like Which, how they're feeling, like mentally. Okay. Because a lot of like, you don't learn well if your mental health is like down the toilet, you know? I got you. And I feel like... Like we should, they should be more interested now in what the students want to learn. Because like, if you're in your own house, there's no one to hold you accountable for your work. Like you can just not open an email, you know? Mm -hmm. So if you get the kids engaged with what they want to learn and what interests them, they're going to want to do that work at home. They're not going to put it off and just disregard that email or not join that Google meet, you know? Mm -hmm. So I feel like faculty and teachers kind of like reaching out to students and be like what do you feel like you can engage with via distance learning getting on a more personal level with this not like personal level but you know like what i mean with the students so so i just want to transition to some some questions around literacy and ask well first say that we often hear about students in school or graduating who have not learned to read or write well what do you think is going on there? I feel like a lot of the times teachers just pass them on to the next class and hope that it gets fixed later on in life, you know, like, or sometimes the kids just don't engage because of issues outside of school or like, like undiagnosed learning just challenges and struggles and stuff. All these things like tie in, like if there's not a good home environment, if, if the teachers just don't engage well with the students, or if the curriculum doesn't hit with the student or like interest the student, like it's all not gonna be like in the student, like I wanna learn this, I wanna write this or anything, you know? Like it's just overall, like it's sad it can happen, mm-hmm. right? Is that a bad answer? Like that actually uh, sounded like a very honest response. Um, thank you for sharing that. How do you think remote learning has affected uh, students who struggle with reading and writing? Oh, it's so hard. <laughs> I, okay, so obviously I have an IEP and I have dyslexia. I like 24-7, I ask teachers for help on everything. And there's a lot of kids who have learning challenges that don't have the confidence to do that and don't have the support system to do that. Mm-hmm. If they didn't set up these support systems during school, that can't transition to distance learning and that student won't be able to get the education they deserve Mm -hmm. through distance learning because they don't have the people that they need as like resources to go to and be like, hey, help me, I need this assistance, you know? Mm -hmm. 
-hmm. How do you think remote learning can be improved for these students or for all students? Set up those support systems as a faculty meet and say who's ready to take on this or who's qualified to take on the students who are struggling, who need support, because those students don't want to fail. Those students want to succeed in life and in school, but they can't get that when the school system's failing them. Okay. When the faculty isn't equipped to handle their struggles and challenges and all of that while distance learning. Mm -hmm. Have you seen this play out differently across race? Or, or economic class? Like learning about it through racial justice and stuff. Yeah, like there's a lot of times where like students don't get what they need. And it's a lot of times because of their race or their skin color or their gender or all of that stuff. Like it happens and it's really, really, really crappy. And how do you think people learn to read and, and write? My experience, you go to kindergarten, you watch the teacher write on the board, you mimic what the teacher writes, and you sound out vowel, the vowels, the consonants, all that jazz. And like, it's just like the repetition of it, it gets into your brain and stuff. Like, I don't, I'm not like educated in this topic, but like, I mean, I've never been asked that question. Mm -hmm. I guess you just like learn through watching people do it. You, you can speak about your own experience. That's okay. That's all I, I don't really know. That's, okay. why didn't I, I've, I've never been asked that question. How people <laughs> learn how to read? It just, it happens, man. I don't know. I was like five years old. I didn't know how to read. And then one day I knew how to read. <laughs> okay. Um, what would you say about the, the SBACs test? Do, do you think that that's a reliable? I was so terrified to take those SBAC tests. I was like the kid that had to be taken out of the room to do it because I needed special assistance and everyone would look at me when I did it and it was so terrifying so I couldn't focus on the test. I'm a horrible test taker. I can't do it. SBACs, PSATs, anything. So like when we look at my scores, it's like that's way lower than it should be. And I'm like, but I know all these answers. Hmm. It just didn't translate be through the test paper. Like I like freeze. Like all my knowledge is like flow, like it's, no, it's not. Mm -hmm. Standardized testings are, they're just not reliable because every student learns differently and everyone has different test taking anxieties and some people really excel in it. Some people are great at learning like, like that and others are like, I need hands-on, I need this, I need this. It's just, no, no. What, what happens when students, what happens to students when they fall behind in learning to read? What, what happens when they enter middle and high school? They feel like crap. They are education shoppers. They get pointed out. You like freeze up when you're called to read in front of a class. You, it's over, your experience is just crappy. You, you're looked at differently. You feel like you can't do like reading is a basic thing and that, that everyone should be like taught. And then the kids that aren't just feel like S word. I got, I wish I could swear. They fall behind and that should never happen. Mm -hmm. If, if you could wave a magic wand, what would uh, teaching and learning of literacy, reading and writing look like in schools? Magic wand. Um, more inclusivity, obviously. 
less pointing out of a student's quote unquote disabilities, challenges, struggles, destigmatizing the need for assistance and support, more training for the teachers on how to teach children with different challenges, books that interest kids, things that interest children into learning, and I don't know, like a happy, positive environment that gets kids interested in reading and writing and literacy. Mm. We got to get you that magic wand for sure, because that was... Really, that sounded like a really crappy answer, okay? No, 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 not at all. Uh, what do you think teachers, school board members, and educational leaders, parents, and legislators can do to move us in that direction? They need to get people in office that know those struggles, that are educated around those struggles. You need people from all different backgrounds. You need people that grew up in poverty, that grew up with learning disabilities, that, that grew up with like different races and all that you don't need to be the same cookie cutter person making those laws you know Mm -hmm. just so much that i don't know how to phrase properly because i'm 16 (laughs) and i have never been asked these questions okay i'll wait until we're done with the questions to tell you know to you know share with you how brilliant I think you are. Uh, if you, if, if parents have students who are struggling to learn to read, what do you recommend they do? Reach out. Reach out to the support systems that your school has provided. And if those are failing you, go up. Go talk to their bosses. Like, be a badass for your kid like you need to stand up for your student because if a kid is struggling that much and your school isn't providing the assistance that 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 student deserves things need to change at that school and that school needs to be called out just google search like literally go on your computer and look up programs that can assist my child in learning and in reading and writing and so many resources will pop up it's just educate yourself to make you you a better parent for your child what what else would you like vermonters to know about literacy and education in in our state of vermont it needs to be improved it needs to be more inclusive more diverse destigmatized around people who need assistance who are different than you vermont is i mean in my experience my school going in the right direction but very slowly Mm. like more steps forward and less steps back this past spring uh governor phil scott said that i quote i believe it is possible for vermont to emerge from this crisis on a path towards having the very best education system in the country and ultimately in the world given your perspective and from your perspective what would the very best education system look like? No hate, no violence, positive, inclusive. There wouldn't be a need for a restorative justice class. Like there wouldn't be a need for these disciplinary actions. Like everyone would go to school and it would be positive and you'd be getting the 
teachers who are interested in their jobs, who love their jobs, who love their students. And test scores would go up because everyone's happy and in a positive learning environment where they're getting fed, where they have time to relax and not stress about grades or home life or anything. It would just be a more positive, I wish I knew the words, but I don't know any of the words. Just, yeah, just a lot more work to get to the, to where he wants us to be. Okay. Um, Is there anyone else you think we should be speaking with um, on this issue? Like Randolph wise or like, like my experience wise? Uh, Both. Talk to like faculty at Randolph, obviously. Pretty sure you already knew that because smart dude. Um, Talk to like, start them off young, you know, like talk to like middle schoolers and be like, hey, what are you seeing wrong with the school? What do you want to see better? How how are you feeling about coming to this big school? What's this transition like for you? Don't wait until we're seniors in high school and ask us, hey, what do you want to see change? Because we won't be here next year. That's the seventh and eighth graders that you need to get involved in this conversation. Okay. Bravo, Emily. Thank you for, uh, thank you for that. Nearly half of Vermont youth have not learned to read on grade level by the time they leave high school. It may come as a surprise to some that Vermont schools have failed to teach the vast majority of students to read well who come from low-income families, are children of color, and or are eligible for special education. In recent years, the proportion of Vermont youth who cannot read proficiently has grown. In October 2019, the National Assessment of Educational Progress, also known as the NAEP, published the country's reading results of fourth and eighth graders. Across the nation, outcomes for both age groups had declined slightly since 2017 and had barely moved since the NAEP began testing in 1992. Nearly two-thirds of America's children scored below grade level. Vermont had once been proud of its students' performance on this assessment compared to other states, but now has dropped by five points, receiving the dubious distinction of ranking eighth among states with the steepest declines in student performance. Facts. Vermont scored only marginally better than the nation, with 37% of fourth graders and 40% of 8th graders passed the exam. Not only did the majority fail to read proficiently, the NAEP found that 32% of 4th graders and 23% of 8th graders in Vermont received the lowest score of, quote, below basic, according to the National Center for Education Statistics in 2019. The performance of African-American students in Vermont is similar to the rest of the country. On the Smarter Balanced Assessment Consortium, also known as the SBAC exams, an average of 15% fewer black third graders pass the reading exam than their white counterparts. This achievement gap grows over time, with nearly double the percentage of white students passing the SBAC than African-American students. That's uh, 30% compared to 55% in 2018. Vermont youth from low-income backgrounds perform slightly better than black students yet have a wider achievement gap with over a quarter fewer passing the reading exam 
than students who are not low income. That's a 27% point gap. Students eligible for special education perform far worse with only 8% of ninth graders reading on grade level compared to 63% of students who do not receive special education. Now, some of Vermonters discount the value of standardized tests, perhaps doubting the nationally normed measures of students' ability. However, the disparities in these results show irrefutable stark differences by race, ethnicity, family income, and special education eligibility. Today, one can meet many Vermont teens and adults under 30 who do not read books outside of school, cannot spell many common words, cannot write coherent, grammatically correct sentences, and have not developed handwriting skills beyond the lower elementary level. Secondary school teachers and college faculty describe the steep declines they have seen in students' reading comprehension and writing skills, and often must lower expectations and simply teach less compared to 10 or 20 years ago. Many feel that Vermont youth and adults need not suffer this way. According to the American Federation of Teachers, 40 decades of scientific research demonstrates that 95% of people can become fully literate with the right curriculum and instruction. Experts in literacy contend that when teachers highly trained in structured language provide instruction that is direct, explicit, systematic, cumulative, and diagnostic from oral communication and sound letter correspondence to word origins and comprehension beginning no later than kindergarten and continuing into middle and high school, nearly every child can read and write with fluency, accuracy, and joy. Vermont is already well positioned to move forward in teaching every student to become fully literate. It is written in Vermont state law, the personal and economic cost of reading failure are enormous, both while the student remains in school and long afterward. The law states that all students need to receive systematic reading instruction in the early grades from a teacher who is skilled in teaching reading through a variety of instructional strategies that take into account the different learning styles and language backgrounds of the students. The law includes that a public school that offers instruction in grades one, two, or three shall provide highly effective research-based reading instruction to all students. I'm Blanche Podhysky, and I'm the founder and the president of the Stern Center for Language and Learning in Williston, Vermont. And I'm also um, a clinical associate professor of neurosciences at the Larner College of Medicine at the University of Vermont. Wow, thank you for joining me today. I just have a, a few questions for you regarding literacy. The first question is, I guess in the context of how we often hear about students in school who graduate who have not learned how to read or write. What do you think is going on there? Well, it's a big and a kind of complicated question, but one for which I think we have a solution. And in this you know, time of an unprecedented pandemic, it really is nice to know there are some things we can control 
I think literacy is one of them. There are many things we can't control. But I think a lot of these students were really never taught during their foundation years of school. I mean, we know that 47% of kids enter kindergarten not ready to read. But over the course of kindergarten through second grade, most children can learn to read. In fact, we know that 95% of children can be taught to read if we use informed instruction. But if those children don't learn to read during the early grades, the likelihood is they're gonna to continue to be behind in fourth grade and into seventh grade and so forth. And for some reason, we have this mistaken notion that you stop learning to read after second grade. We learn to read throughout our lives. And seventh graders can learn to read, ninth graders can learn to read, adults can learn to read, but they need to be taught by an informed teacher. Thank you. So how do you think remote learning has affected students who struggle with reading or writing at grade level? Well, again, it's not so much the medium it's what's being transmitted through the medium. For example, we have some children who are excelling in live instruction with no learning problems whatsoever who didn't do well in online instruction. It was just a question of whether they preferred that warm, interactive feel of being with a, a live person. But when you're in special education, I think the the stakes are even higher in terms of the need for customization or individualization. And sometimes that's easier to identify in a live situation, but that doesn't mean it can't be addressed through remote learning. And that's why I say it's more the message. If we're teaching structured literacy, for example, which is explicit systematic teaching, we can see outcomes for both children in remote learning and children in live learning. As a matter of fact, when we interviewed parents and got their perceptions at the Stern Center about whether they would prefer to have their children seen live or online, they said they'd prefer to come in live, but that they felt that both the remote learning and the live learning were equally effective. In some cases, they thought the remote learning was even more effective. So I think it's more what we're teaching than how we're teaching it. And so how, to, how do people learn to read? How, how do they learn to write? Spoken language is a lot older, probably a million years old since humanness began. Mm -hmm. uh, whereas written language um, is only maybe about 5,000 years old. So we're learning a new system here, relatively speaking, okay? But we have to map it. We have to map our written language onto our spoken language. That's what children learn first. They learn how to talk. They learn how to talk very well. And what we want them to do is map what they know, the language they're speaking, to what they don't know, mm -hmm. which is language in print. And that's not always easy. For example, we have 26 alphabet letters, but 44 sounds. So it's not a one-to-one -one correspondence. And yet children need to learn that speech sound correspondence if they're going to be effective independent readers or decoders. 
So there's a real simple kind of an equation. If we say reading equals decoding times language comprehension, you need both. But decoding is a very fundamental skill that 60% of kids may learn how to do intuitively, but 40% are not. And that's why we're seeing our standardized test scores, they're just declining. They're just declining. Bottom line, they're not good. We've got only one third of fourth graders at a proficient level. That is not a good thing. It's an equity issue, not just for children who are considered marginalized, our, our children with disabilities and our children of poverty or our children of color, but our children who haven't had the opportunity to learn. What would you say to people who, who are not confident that uh, SBAC tests are a reliable means for measuring a young person's ability to read at grade level? Well, it's a good question to raise because any assessment, any test measure we use with children is um, sort of a, an estimate of what they can do with a particular assessment. The SBAC, mm -hmm. just like any assessment tool, measures a student's performance at a particular day and a particular time doing a particular learning behavior, okay? Mm. Usually the SBACs measure reading comprehension because they ask children to read text and infer or make judgments or comprehend what they're reading. And language comprehension or reading comprehension should always be the end goal of reading. That's what we read for, to inform, to gain pleasure from print. However, in order to get to it, we have to know how to crack the code, how to make sense out of print. And if you look at even first graders, 80% of the variance in children's performance on reading comprehension measures can be linked to their understanding of sound symbol correspondence. Okay. You often hear that English is a very difficult language. <laughs> uh, <laughs> so many exceptions that the rules don't really matter. Uh, is this true? And if yes, is it even possible for many people to learn to write and spell well? I hear that a lot too. There are so many exceptions. Well, Dr. Louisa Motes, who's one of the champions in our business, she's really an icon, especially in the linguistic spelling world, um, writes that 50% of English can be figured out if you understand sound symbol correspondence, okay? Another 34% can be figured out with just one error. So that would make like 84% of our language usually predictable. 84% is not bad. If students coming into the Stern Center came in being able to read and spell 84% of the language, they wouldn't need us that much. Uh, actually, some experts say that with knowledge of word origins, you know, whether a word comes from the Greek or Latin or Anglo-Saxon, you can even predict it so that only 4% of the language can't be figured out. So I don't buy it. I don't buy it. And I think if we teach well, we can teach children how our language works. Yeah. And so what, what, what happens to students when they fall behind in learning how to read? What happens when they enter middle school and high school? What happens when they go to college or start working? Well, it just affects everything, Infinite. I mean, reading is the basic 
fundamental upon which everything else builds our content knowledge and science and social studies, our uh, ability to get into higher education, our employability, our ability to read a prescription, and just our economic advantage opportunities. Okay, my favorite question. If you could wave a magic wand, what would teaching and, and learning of literacy look like in schools? Well, I would just love to see us follow the science. It would be so terrific if we could all be in this together. Um, like so many other things in our culture right now, we're awfully polarized. And people are thinking, oh, the way to teach reading is to make sure they get exposed to a lot of good literature and learn vocabulary and learn syntax. Absolutely. I couldn't agree more. I'm a language person. I'm a speech and language pathologist by training. I've spent 50 years studying language and I adore it. I love it. But in order to appreciate text or books or good literature, you have to understand how to make sense out of print. So the science of reading has told us through brain activation studies, this isn't just hypotheses that we're throwing around here. This is proven neuroscience that we're talking about, that we can shift brain activity depending on whether or not you're taught through a systematic, explicit sound symbol strategy. And to teach our teachers, you know, teachers have so much on their plates and they haven't been prepared. Higher ed often doesn't prepare them for teaching the science of reading. Uh, and it's nobody's fault. It's not a blame game. It's rather, this is what they come in knowing, or this is what professional learning hasn't offered them. This is what we need to teach them so that they can teach the children. Uh, can you speak to some of the barriers for both uh, your teaching teachers and the previous uh, way that you would like to see uh, you know, schools uh, teach learning of, of literacy? What are the barriers? Well, it's really kind of boggled my mind why there are so many barriers, really. When you think about it, why can't we sort of do it all? If we know there is a proven science, why can't we incorporate that alongside language comprehension? When I spoke about the polarization before, I think we've seen people taking sides about how reading should be taught. Rather than looking to the evidence, we have to look to the evidence and say, this is how children learn. I can still appreciate the importance of beautiful literature. I can appreciate teaching vocabulary and syntax and background knowledge and concepts of print, but I have to teach what the science has proven works, which is how speech maps to print through sound symbol relationships that are learned automatically and fluently. Great. Thank, thank you so much for that. <laughs> I, I think um, that, that's a great place to wrap up. You've been listening to Back to Freedom School, ongoing discussions about some of the challenges facing Vermont's education system some of the opportunities to achieve equity in Vermont's education system. I'm your host, Infinite. Thanks again for listening.